we really need to capture this. Video and audio if you can. the children down for children's church I would like to address our young people you all y'all you're young people young people <laughs> young people keep my distance welcome to those that are visiting we, we usually send the kids down to the children's church with a word of encouragement from what we're studying as adults what we're studying in the Bible Gavin is the book of Philippians and the book of Philippians is about two ways you can serve God in your life. Two ways. You can be Paul, representing the people that go and serve the Lord as they're living. That that's what they do for their living. Pastors do this. Or you can be, you know, you can do what God wants, whatever he wants you to do. If it's, if it's God's plan for you, you can do it. You know that? The Holy Spirit can work in you to do whatever he wants. And so you can be the person that does it for the living, that, that's your job, if you will. I hate to use that expression. It's not a job. You can do it for your living, or you can be a Philippian, and you can do everything you do for the Lord and be partners with Paul, with the full-time guy. You can be their partner in that work as you support it. But what the Bible doesn't do is give you a third option. There's no third way. There's no, well, I'm a Christian. I mean, a lot of Christians are this way, but it's not the biblical way. I'm a Christian, but I'm really not vocational ministry, and I'm not on mission uh, supporting and producing and, and, and working in that work. I'm not part of it. 
The Bible says, everybody look at me, all young people, I'm about to send you down. The Bible says that God has a plan for your life, and that plan includes the mission of the gospel. And how you relate to the mission of the gospel is your spiritual gift, your spiritual growth, your love for the Lord Jesus, and so your willingness to do what he says. Now, how can I make this big universal statement and say all Christians are in full-time Christian service? How can I do it? Well, I, I read the Bible. And what I found there in its summary statements are the Great Commission passages, the on-mission statements. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ means you're a disciple maker. And it means you're part of the enterprise of evangelizing, telling unbelievers about Jesus. And when they believe in Jesus Christ, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's Matthew 28, 19. But then that's not the end, is it? You baptize young people that are believers in Jesus, and so you proclaimed it by water baptism. Great. That's the command of the Lord Jesus, but that's not your life. That's the beginning of life. Then we keep all that Jesus commanded. And Jesus said, you make disciples by teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you to obey our savior. And that means that whether you are full-time Christian ministry as a, as it's your job, or whether you have a day, day, nine to five Monday through Friday job, you see it as your mission. It's part of my work as unto the Lord. And I don't mean you're preaching at work. You may find an occasion. God may open a door and you're looking for those opportunities. But what I mean is you go to work and God is your boss. That's Colossians 3. And you're the best worker because you're working for the best boss. And your human boss says, wow, what a great worker. But you're doing it as unto the Lord and you take of your substance and you promote the gospel ministry as you can. That's the Christian life. If you have studied to understand what is my life in the Lord and you come up with something besides the power of the spirit through the word of God to serve Christ in the mission he's given me. If you come up with something besides that for the Christian way of life, you don't have the Christian way of life. But great news. It's awesome. The word of God is very clear on what God wants for us. Not only can I make a general statement for our young people, God has a plan for you. I can tell you in a broad way what it is. He wants you to be part of making disciples. Yeah, you, Christian, all of you, all of us. And the question you and I need to be asking is, how can I do it, Lord? What do you have for me? How do you get me in the game? John Fogarty, put me in, coach. Didn't Fogarty sing that? I'm ready to play. Get me off the bench and let me be on mission, however you want. Now, don't get ahead of the Lord and say, well, here's how I choose to serve God because I've got these great ideas. I know about great ideas. I know all about great ideas. The way my ideas work, I think one out of a hundred is probably a keeper. Thankfully, I get hundreds of ideas every day. <laughs> Maybe not every day. Mike's, Mike Regal is one of my helpful filters on the good ideas. Mike and Krista are in partnership to help me not make bad, my, my bad ideas uh, come to fruition. One of my ideas was to do this with you young people and, and, and encourage you now. God has a plan for your life and it's the mission. So how are you going to do it? God's way, God's timing, God's provision. Just know that if you're going to grow up spiritually, if you're going to be serious about the Lord, if you're going to occupy yourself with Jesus Christ, he's going to put you to work. He's going to get you on mission. He's got a purpose for your life. And it is where the joy is. It's where the excitement is, where the energy, it's where the beauty of the Christian life lives. And if you don't have the joy, you don't have, you're not in the work. I, I promise. If you're in the work and you don't have the joy, you're not doing it in the power of the spirit. But that's God's plan for you. And he loves you. And believe me, his way is better than your way. His idea of saying no to something is better than you getting the thing he said no to. And his idea of you do this is better than you saying no to him. The best thing you can do is what God has for you. Can we pray for our young people as we send them to study in depth at their level? Father, we love you. And we love these young people you've given us. We take seriously your word that children are an inheritance from the Lord. I pray for the souls of each one of these young people. Father, your world, your, your word is directly opposed to Satan's world system. And our children are constantly being attacked by bad ideas, by the lust of the flesh, Father, by all the things that the world has to offer. And I pray that you will steal them, solidify them, harden their, uh, their resolve to focus on you and 
seek your will, your plan, your purpose, your mission. Father, help our young people be on mission and protect them from your enemy, the devil, and his many bad ideas. Father, we love you. We know you love them better than we ever could, and we commit them to you in this request. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. amen. I'm going to invite our young people to head downstairs. Who knows the song that the girls played this morning? Who doesn't know the song? Who is not into raising hands? I get it. Okay. I like to tell you a story of that song and me. I first heard that song at the uh, U.S. Military Academy. Strangely enough, a place you would not expect to hear that song. A very secular place. The first time I heard that song was the, uh, the off-Broadway shows that come through. They, they have a theater there and uh, they'll come through and see different acts. And um, wouldn't expect to go to the theater and have sun- Saturday afternoon entertainment and, uh, and hear his eyes on the sparrow. But it was the most memorable song I heard in a two-hour session played by the very famous, renowned New Orleans jazz band called um, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And if you ever go to New Orleans, there's a few things that you, you really want to check out. You want to go to Preservation Hall and sit on their folding metal chairs. And, you know, it's very hole-in-the-wall kind of place. Apparently, I've never been, but that's one of the things you want to do. You want to... Um, you want to get a slice of mile-high pie and uh, eat some, some jambalaya and other uh, delightful Cajun things. You want to make sure you eat as much crawfish as you can. I know you think it's crayfish, but it, it's not. And, um, and anyway, uh, there, there are things that, but this is something, it's a landmark thing. And I'd never heard of it till they came through. And I heard them play in their happy uh, New Orleans old 20s style jazz they call it the happy music. Every song has a banjo. It's really fun and bright. I heard them play this song and the singer, this very elderly banjo playing had to be 80 year old black man singing this song in Southern gospel style with his whole little combo of trombone and trumpet and saxophone and whatever else they had and piano. It was, it was phenomenal. And then I, I got the CD and I listened to the song and it became one of my favorite gospel songs. And we don't sing it in the church. I don't think it's, I'm not sure if it's in the hymnal. I mean, I'd love to sing it, but I want you to hear the story of it um, as we head to Philippians chapter one. <clears throat> the story written by Robert Morgan uh, recounting the telling of the, the origin of this song, His Eyes on the Sparrow. I just want to read the first verse to you. And if I want to do that, then I have to do this. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely as lo- and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is he, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. This is the original poem. And of course, there is the chorus that has been added, the girls played. And it is, it's, it's fallen on hard times, that chorus, in theological talk. And in church Christian talk, you're not supposed to be happy. You're supposed to have joy the way they talk today, as though we're going to find that in the Bible. Do you know happy and joy are synonyms? And biblically, happy is the man who pays attention to the word of God. It's all through the Proverbs. It's all through the Psalms. Happiness is God's to give. It's God's eternal bliss. There's another word, bliss, joy, happiness. These are all the same thing. They're all the same experience of good things because of good information, because of good outcomes, because of satisfied desires. When you want what God wants, God gives you his happiness, and that's part of his plan. The reason that the theologians today don't like happy as a word is because the culture uses it to mean they're having fun, or the little kids are satisfied because they got their cookies. The problem isn't the satisfaction of desire. The problem is where you get it. Happiness from God is a real thing. It's called joy. And so I kind of have an ax to grind about a popular Christendom poo-pooing the word happy when it's all through the Old Testament. It's mistranslated blessed in Psalm 1 and in Proverbs 8. Ashrei means happy. It means rejoice. It means good, favorable feeling. You could also call it rejoicing, but it's a different word. So the chorus of the, uh, his eyes on the sparrow says, I'm seeing because I'm happy. Why are, you, why are you happy? Because of, because of God, because he's given you his joy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. The idea is in the chorus that the thought that God is with me, that he's watching me, that he cares for me, 
gives me joy. It gives me that harmonious feeling that my life matters because it matters to God and, and not for any other reason. And that's a sufficient reason. In fact, that's an infinite and an eternal reason. And so as I think of the thoughts of God, as I think about my relationship with God, of course, I rejoice. I sing because I'm happy. See, I love English language, but I hate bad theological reasoning and word games. And so I'm all for the word happy. I'm very much opposed to seeking happiness other than in God. Robert Morgan writes, most people have a hobby or some sort, uh, uh, of some sort to provide a healthy diversion from the rigors of work. Long ago, there was a woodworker in Nazareth who counted birdwatching among his diversions. How do we know that? Well, because he, in his teaching, Jesus talked about birds. We can make that assumption because Jesus later referred frequently to bird life in his sermons, saying things like, now be careful. There's a thing called birding. I've heard. I think it's probably awesome. I have a really good friend in the ministry that talks about it on Facebook all the time. Hey, I saw a, you know, a red crested whippoorwillow or something. And, and it's, he's, he's collecting, like people collect baseball cards. It's great. God made those birds. But Jesus wasn't a birder. Right? He... The idea that they're, they're doing hobbies back then, like we were doing today, highly unlikely. These people are subsistence living, and they did see the birds. And Jesus, by the way, did make them and hold them together by this powerful word, and he knows all about them. So, but uh, but I, I would not go quite to the point that Jesus is a birder. But Jesus did teach with birds quite a lot. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. In fact, there was once a book and turned into a movie that what if the birds hated us and started fighting us? It was called... The birds and the birds, if they get angry, you will see how many birds there are if they start attacking you. But um, that doesn't happen in the Lord's teaching. He says in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls into the ground apart from my father's, your father's will. In Matthew 6, 26, he says, look at the birds of the air for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He says in Luke 12, 26, consider the ravens. And when you say that, it makes me think of how Elijah got fed when he was hiding out in a cave. The ravens brought him food. Do not fear in Luke 12, 7, you are of more value than many sparrows. And that's the rationale this, this song has. His eyes on the sparrow, so I know he watches me. It's called an a-force-you-ori argument. If God's worried about the less valuable thing, then he's certainly worried about the more valuable thing. If he cares about the little animals, then he certainly cares about me. That's, that's the reasoning. And did you know what? If you follow that thought that God cares about the little thing, and therefore he cares certainly about me, if you follow that thought from Jesus, do you know what you're doing? Stand back. You're thinking God's thoughts. You are biblically reasoning from what God says. And did you know that that is the highest function? According to the pagan philosophers, that's the highest function of man is reason. Uh, Aristotle said, maybe he's right, but I would say reasoning God's thoughts with him and communion with him. That would be a really great thing to do. Do you know the happiness and the joy from thinking that thought? That's the pattern. And that's one reason I love this song. I sing because I'm happy because I have this principle that God's told me. So I think it. It's not popular to teach thinking in Christian circles today. We don't talk about that. Thinking, come on, that sounds like I'm having to go to school or something. But the truth is, it's a satanic lie that we shouldn't be teaching thinking. We have to think. The whole game is thinking. Feelings are part of the package, but they're a consequence of the right thoughts. And that's how joy works. That's the dynamics of Christian joy. Morgan continues, it was this theme about the birds that caused the author of God will take care of you. She also wrote this to write a year later, another great hymn of God's care. His eyes on the sparrow. Sevilla Durfee, nay Durfee, uh, married Martin. Sevilla Martin was a Canadian by birth. Born on August 21st of 1869 in Nova Scotia, she became a school and music teacher. But when she married Dr. Walter Martin, an evangelist, she gave up teaching to travel with him and assist in his meetings. And she, this is a long quote that she wrote about writing the song, His Eyes on the Sparrow. She said, early in the spring of 1905, my husband and I were sojourning in Elmira, New York, <clears throat> without masks. It doesn't say that, but... Um, 
we contracted. See, isn't it funny how COVID colors everything? We contracted a deep friendship for a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle, true saints of God. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for nearly 20 years. Her husband was an incurable cripple who had to propel himself to and from business in a wheelchair. Despite their afflictions, they lived happy Christian lives, bringing inspiration and comfort to all who knew them. We're talking about happiness there, but it's not happiness from the world. It's happiness from God, from a relationship with him. One day while we were visiting with the Doolittle, she, she said, my husband com- commented on their bright hopefulness and asked them for the secret of it. Mrs. Doolittle's reply was simple. His eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me. So the greatest line that launches the song wasn't her line. It was her friends. And she very humbly told everyone, directly quoted his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. The beauty of this simple expression of boundless faith gripped the hearts and fired the imagination of Dr. Martin and me. The hymn, His Eyes on the Sparrow, was the outcome of that experience. So she wrote this poem. The day after writing the song, she mailed it to the famous gospel composer Charles, Charles Gabriel, who penned the music. <clears throat> not, a, not a song or a set of chords with a hook looking for words, but a thought, a genuine Christian reflection that motivated the artist to, to write a poem based on her friend's commitment that became something we sing. I think that's probably the pattern. We've assembled to fellowship with God and his word, and so we'll do so now in Philippians, turning to chapter one, if you have your Bible, and I will provide my translation of the um, the Hebrew, or the, sorry, the Greek text, I do know the difference, the Greek text, and uh, make remarks as we go, but we're looking at something very exciting that is one of the great Christian uh, motto statements in the Bible. The great motto of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, is very condemning to American Christendom in a way. It doesn't allow for cultural Christ- Christianity. Well, we, you know, we go to church. It doesn't allow for Sunday Christianity. Well, we go to church on Sunday, so that's when I think Christian thoughts. It doesn't allow for this, well, I'm going to take a break from the Lord and kind of do my thing, and then I'll be back, you know, eventually. Or, you know, these other Christians may be really interested in Christian service, but I don't really, I'm not really, you know, settle down. It doesn't allow for any of that, because the Apostle Paul, as an exemplar for you, says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. That's Philippians 1, 21. And as we settle into the, the context of what he says and how he says, my prayer for you is that you will look into the mirror of that statement and see how you stack up. And if you're going to be consistent with the Apostle Paul, you'll say, this is true whether I feel like it or not. I often don't feel like it. I often don't think this way, but I believe this is true. And there are some adjustments that I need to make every day to steer my life this way. Wouldn't it be nice if Christianity, if the Christian life was like get riding a train? Well, I saw a guy in the Tesla in, in national news asleep at 90 miles an hour, <laughs> his self-driving car on the interstate in Australia this last week. And uh, he thought he was in a train. I wouldn't recommend driving that way. 20 years from now, maybe, but not today. But sometimes we want to drive like we're on a train. We want to just get in there like a man. I got paid my ticket. I'm on however I got in here and take me somewhere. I'll just sit in the chair and in the, in the th- I love taking the train because I can bring my laptop. I can get work done. I don't have to worry about side view mirrors or rear view mirrors. It's, it's neat. It's a neat thing. And wouldn't it be hysterical if we got on the train? You know, I mean, it's, it's a novelty, but, but that's not how the Christian life drives. Um, it's really not. Yes, the Lord Jesus is empowering you. God, the Holy Spirit is, is working in you, but you have to make your decisions. You have to look out on the horizon and see what your life is for. That's why all the eschatology, you have to check what's going on around you. You need some awareness of who you're talking to. And, and so you got to check your side, your side picture, your front picture. It's important to know where you got it right and wrong. So you have a right relationship with the rearview mirror. 
not like I can't look at the review. I know we feel that way sometimes, but no, it is what it is. And that's what's going on back there. And so I'm going forward. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. And, if, and as, as you know, those of you who drive, if you don't steer, if you don't actively steer, the road changes even a straightaway. Well, unless you go out, you know, out your direction, out Kansas. I, I understand the roads are kind of straight. But, but you still have to stay awake and pay attention to what you're doing because there are decisions that you make along the way. And my illustration of the train versus driving with a car is, a, to me, it's a great thing to have. Isn't it nice that you can decide what you're going to do when you're going to do it with your vehicle? You didn't have to call anybody uh, and ask them, can I have a car you know, ready at my house at nine this morning? so I can get to church on time. And they, they called back and said, yeah, the, church, the cars aren't ready. It won't be till 930. Um, when they take the cars away and it goes to electronic, I don't like the way that looks. Mass tra- I really love individual transport. Did you know you can get in your car and if it, it can handle it, you can go 70 miles an hour. You can go 70 miles in one hour unless you're really adventurous. You can go faster. I don't recommend it, but you can go faster. And under your own equipment, it's really cool, but that's, let's don't get distracted. My point is that when you're driving, you have to make decisions. The road changes. The circumstances around you call for you to ex- react in real time. And that's how the Christian life is. There, there isn't really an autopilot. There isn't a Jesus take the wheel. In this Christian life, my, my microphone's uh, not doing great. So we're going to try to inflate it just a second. Am I back? I'm back. Hopefully it won't pop anymore. John was the last one to use it. <laughs> Who, by the way, did a great job. Yeah, all, all y'all did a fantastic job. And, um, and I really mean that. It was really wonderful. But, but your Christian life is a constant awareness. It's conscious living. It's consciously, am I walking by the Spirit? That's why the, the challenges in the scriptures to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. He's talking to Christians about walking like we should walk. It's not test yourself to see if you actually believed when you were a little kid and whether you have eternal life. It's testing yourself whether you're living the life God gave you. And we all need to do that as we make our little corrections as the road changes around us. But back to for me to live is Christ. Do you have that attitude in your day to day? Today's message is really about life and death. The life part we like to talk about, the death part we really don't like to talk about. The, the, this pulpit is known for the, the encouraging message, we're all going to die. Isn't that great news? Well, if for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, then there is a sense in which the unfortunate fact of our physical death has a great change of state from absent from the body to present with the Lord. That's your destiny. And if you adopt Paul's attitude, you're going to have to make that correction as we drift from it every day. To, to live like Paul lives, you have to keep saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The road's going to change. You're going to have to steer. You're going to have to think. You're going to have to trust the Lord. And he's going to equip you to do it. Well, we have problems in Paul's experience. Paul is in prison in Rome. He is suffering, and he is suffering physically. He's suffering uh, socially. There are people that are opposing him, as we've read in uh, Philippians 1. But he says, even those that are opposing me are preaching the gospel. Even to oppose me, they're preaching the gospel. And so he says in Philippians 1.18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So even ministry opponents who are preaching the gospel, Paul is able to look away from them attacking him and look to Jesus Christ, which is always the answer. He says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that this circumstance will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, the supply that the Holy Spirit gives me. He's going to empower me and supply me to do the work that I have to do. And what will be his deliverance? Listen to it. Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, 
but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. When Paul says this situation of me being imprisoned, of his eye problem, whatever else he's dealing with, with health, the opposition of his friends, this hard time that he's going through that the Philippians are concerned about, Epaphroditus told them about this. And so Paul's, they've written to him and they're concerned. Paul is telling them, how to think about this. All this hardship that I'm facing, even when Christians are saying I'm suffering for as God's disciplining me when he's just suffering for the gospel. This is going to turn out for my deliverance because the, your prayers, God's going to answer them because the Holy Spirit is going to supply my need and therefore I won't be ashamed and Christ will be exalted in me. My deliverance, my success in life, my purpose is that Christ is exalted in me. That is Paul's attitude. And he'll be exalted in my body, whether in life or death. That's Philippians 1 20. So when we get to verse 21, we're talking about life and death in Christ. It's some of the most challenging autobiography you'll ever read from anyone. The, the value of autobiography, when you read virtuous people and they tell you about their experiences, the value is you say, if he can live that way, if she can do this, then I can trust in God and do this. And that's what Paul is doing in the inspiration of the spirit telling you his attitude. This is how Paul gets up in the morning and how he lives his life. He is elsewhere. He calls himself the scum of the earth for Christ's sake. The Romans think he's a criminal and they have him imprisoned. Some fellow Christians think he is under divine discipline. And so he has his physical ailments and his his imprisonment, his political imprisonment. And one place we'll read in Philippians, everyone's abandoned me except for a couple of guys. So he can't look to the Christian community and find validation. He can't look to the political situation and find validation for his choices. He can only, and you and I can only look to Jesus Christ and say, whether in my death or life, Christ will be exalted in my body. This will be deliverance for me. This is what I want for myself. Because it's what God said he wants for me and I trust him and I know he has the best for me. I want Christ to be exalted in my body through life or death on his timing. I just saved you from fear of death. If you'll get it, if we, we, the word of God just saved us. And when you lose this thought, when you slip off and you slip into thinking after the flesh, it's easy to, to, to lose track of this. For me to live is Christ and to, to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And these are the two things that might happen to you. <laughs> you might live or you might die. I love how Paul thinks categorically. Do you know that what happens next, he breaks it into the categories? Well, here's what happens if this happens. Here's what happens if this happens. Now this is, this is I know this is crazy. You're not supposed to talk to people about dying on Sunday morning. Save that for the funeral on Saturday. The last funeral you went to, I want you to think of it. Think of the last person that you participated in their burial. Might be a young person, perfectly good, healthy body, but something happened. They got sick or they were in an accident. And so except for the one thing that killed them, they were, they were fine. Think of the last time you were involved with a funeral. Maybe it was someone who was very aged and their body was done. They were, it was used up. And it was, as they say, it was time. I think in every case, it's a, it's a horrible thing. We're told the last enemy to be thrown into the lake of fire is death. I think it's metaphoric. I think it's a figure of speech saying, not that the lake of fire is a figure of speech, but there's a, there's a figure saying that this death problem is not a good thing. Yeah, it was time. But Paul is going to take this horrible thing that happens to us, which is the consequence of the fall. Our physical body wears out and we die either through a high energy event on the roads because we're young people and we, we, we weren't careful in driving or somebody else wasn't careful or through old age or through some illness or something. We are all facing this problem and it is a horrible problem. This is how I like to preach funerals. This is not good. such a waste. Today with medical advances, you know, they're able to take body parts that we're not using anymore because we've died 
And if it's within a window of time, they're able to help someone else with something they're, they're, they're struggling with. You can help people with donated corneas. You can help someone who's, who's had trouble seeing. You can help them see again. Their, your body can be used to help someone. All, it's amazing what can happen today. But, you know, short of that, what a waste. And that's the way I think about death when I'm thinking like this. It's, it's a waste. And 70 plus years or 80 plus years is not enough. Yeah, it was time because the body was worn out. Maybe the brain was starting to have problems because that's the body. But we weren't designed to be that way. Death wasn't the original design of the human body. In fact, if you read in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, God says they got to go. Get them out of the garden. Or, yeah, the garden. Why, why do they have to leave the garden? Because in their fallen, sinful, separated from God's state, they could take and eat from the tree of life and live forever. They could perpetuate this life with the, with, of sin eternally. And that's an unthinkable thought as you read the Hebrew. No, 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 no. They got to go. Post the cherubim outside with the flaming sword. They cannot enter the garden anymore and get to the tree of life. Read it in Genesis 3. It's the consequence of the fall is separation from God and perpetuity of separation from God. You know, the Dracula thing, living forever, but, in, but damned. That's, that's unthinkable. It's the lot of most of the human race. They're going to perpetually, in the resurrection to death, be separated from God. But what, what happens to you and me if we look past this life and beyond the sun to where we came from and where we're going, that God made us for himself and in, he made us for himself to enjoy him forever. If we move past the temporal concerns of life and start thinking about eternity, we start thinking like the Apostle Paul, for me to live right now in the flesh with my body functional or as it's getting less and less functional, it's for Christ. For me to die to gain a face-to-face audience with Christ. That's what it means, gain. I get to see him that I've trusted. Peter, who saw Jesus and walked with him, says, we, we, we worship the one we haven't seen. We trust in the one we haven't seen. And this is the gain we're talking about. There is no gain to your physical death, except you gain an audience with your Savior that you've never had before. For me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, then this will mean for me fruitful work. If I live on in the flesh, how does Paul think about his life? Ministry, work. Remember I told the little kids there's two kinds of Christians? Draw a circle around all Christians. By God's design, we're all supposed to be on mission. We all, each one of you has a spiritual gift. We're all supposed to grow in the spirit, grow in the, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, put on Christ for the work. So if you live as a mature believer, fruitful ministry. Oh, no, no, I'm retired. I, I, I used to do all that, but I'm, I'm retired now. Well, great. You have a lot more time for prayer. Pray for me. You have a lot more time to position yourself just in the right spot outside a little umbrella section in the coffee shop and look for opportunities to share someone the Lord Jesus Christ to to love them with the truth Paul says if I'm to live on in the flesh then this will mean for me fruitful work let me just pause there I know you're going to read through it read through Philippians you know take the six minutes or whatever for me to live will mean fruitful work do you think of your life that way honestly if you have a yes, it's on a good moment. When I'm supposed to, I mean, when I'm thinking right, I, I, when I'm thinking like I should, I think that way about life. Please don't be that person in James that sees the mirror of the word and sees where you are in relation and goes away and forgets. L- live it. I need to make this adjustment. Remember, we're steering our car. The road turns. You better pay attention. You got to drive. You have to make adjustments as you go. Make the adjustment. Today, I'm not living this way is maybe the right answer. And you need to tell God, I want to live and for me to live be fruitful work. For me to live is Christ. For me to live means fruitful work. And what to choose, I do not know. Here's a great news thing, Paul. You don't have to choose whether you're going to live or die. 
That's God's choice. Biblically, everywhere we look in Scripture, your days are numbered by God. So the question of, is it, is it permissible at all to be in a position to choose? No, you don't know what to choose. You don't know when is the right time for you to have your appointment with your Savior. And you're not supposed to get there early. And so this is, the, let me be, be, this is an emotional topic for me. There, there was once a, a death in the extended family of our church. It was a horrible thing. It was a suicide that left children of very impressionable age. It was, it was it's just horrible, just catastrophic what happened to these kids. And I was asked, can you help us? We've called everyone else. It wasn't, they weren't in the church. They were just, they knew of the church. They, they had, had had a relationship in the, past, in the Pist with the church. That's how you say it down south, in the Pist. And so um, I came over. I don't know these people. I can't imagine what they're going through, that the father has, has killed himself. It's just unthinkable. What do you say? Well, I, 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 pull, the, I pull the emergency para parachute thing every time and go to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We're in total disaster and disarray. We need peace. So I, I said, let's go ask God what we can be thankful for and, and ask what we need and look for the peace of God that passes all understanding. I mean, that's what I have to do. I don't know what to do. I'll go for the, the passages that talk about peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That's, that's my emergency. If you ever see me in like um, an emergency situation, I just go there and start talking about that. Because in an emotional disaster, you can't think. You need peace to be able to be able to, to work through. In the discussions with the children, the question came up, and it often does, I've found. If he's in a better place, if he's with Jesus because he believed in Christ, I know some have a theology that says that, that you, you go to hell if you commit suicide. The Bible doesn't say that. It says that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. You trust in him, and he's your savior. Well, well Christians can't do that. It's called a sin unto death. Yes, they can. But the question from the child was, if he's with Jesus and that's better, why do I have to be here? And so following the example of our parents is a common thing we do. It's, it's like the most normal thing. Dad did this. I'm in pain that I don't want to feel anymore. Why would I not do this? Now, that makes you angry, if you think about it, at the suicide. It makes you angry at the person that did it. Because it's thoughtless and it takes no account for the responsibilities that you have. It's, as they say, the easy way out. Personally, I don't think of it as an easy way out because it's such a fearful thing. But then when you think about what you're doing to the others around you, yeah, horrible. Horrible. Maybe you've never heard a sermon on suicide. Well, you just heard a sermonette on suicide. It's arrogant and thoughtless and destructive to others. It is throwing a grenade into a group of innocents. Why would you do such a thing? But the, the girl's question was, if, if it's better to be with Jesus and he's not suffering anymore, I'm suffering, it's better for me to be with Jesus. Well, when you say a little child is thinking these unthinkable thoughts, you want to say, there's no hope here. No, we're on the way out. We're on the path to life when you think that way. Because the truth is, beloved, whether you're alive or dead, it's for him. You don't kill yourself for him. Whether you're alive or dead, you're living for Christ. And that's the Christian life. That's the answer. You're in a cave. You're in a, you're in a, a pit that you can't get out of. And he pulls you right out with this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Totally different way of thinking about life. Here's the other, the addendum to that. American Christendom, the way we think about life that I'm just, you know, trying to serve my house or whatever, serve my, my lifestyle, and we go to church because it's cultural. American Christendom that isn't on mission, so it's not recognizable as biblical Christianity. American Christendom is a form of slow suicide. It is the slow death to Christ when you're supposed to be dead to self and alive in Christ. You're dying in your spiritual life little by little, not to separation from God, but eventually perhaps what the Bible calls the sin unto death. It's a wasted Christian life. What a waste is the daily 
Christian wasted suicide. The person that, that lives in a functional death and won't walk by the spirit and won't serve God and won't choose what God wants. That's, that's just as horrible, just as unthinkable. That's the person that lives every day in a functional death. And then the people watching and following their influence, the little kids are influenced by such a thing. Paul's talking about life and death. And I think on, on the board behind me in your Bible in verse 22, you have the answer. It is so wonderful to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And Paul has been present with the Lord. He has been caught up to the third heaven. Some of his training was face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. You read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's not allowed to talk about it because he, he will boast and exalt himself. And that's the opposite of the Christian life. So he's given the thorn in the flesh to keep himself from exalting himself with the great revelations he was given. And yet he tells us these revelations in places like Ephesians and Philippians. But he's not boasting and exalting himself that he's the superstar Christian. He is because of the revelation he's given. But he isn't to exalt himself. He's to exalt Christ. Paul knows what it is to be present with the Lord. And he's here to tell you, it's going to be great. It's better than you think, however good you think it could be. But you're not there now. Well, why do we have to deal with less? Because you've got work to do, because he has a mission for you, because that's what life is for me to live as Christ. And therefore, for me to live as fruitful work in the power of the spirit, abiding in Jesus Christ, bearing the fruit that Jesus would produce in us. But I am hard pressed from the two, the two ideas. I don't know what to want is what it means. I don't know whether I'd, I want to be with the Lord or whether I want to be with you. Christians, let's go there. Let's live there and be Christians about it. We're headed to Jesus. We're headed to face to face with Christ. It's going to be awesome. So we should look forward to it. In recent memory, I've, I've, I have to deal with and, and love on people that are bereft. I have to uh, participate as part of my, my calling in life and, and loving you and being there for you and your family. I have to deal with the worst parts of people's lives where we're losing loved ones. Where I've been asked more than once, could you ask her to let go and just trust the Lord and just quit fighting because it's time to go home? That's the people ask the pastor to do that or other trusted family members because the person's on a respirator and they're in pain and there's no reason to fight. You're going to die. We're not committing suicide, but let's put ourselves in God's care and, and just go home. It's horrible. It's horrible watching someone die. Paul is saying it's awesome to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Never just pass by that thought, oh, they're in a better place. They really are. They're absent from the body and present with the Lord. Their struggle against sin and pain is over. And so Paul has a desire now, he could be under capital punishment. He's saying, y'all are worried about me for, for being under the, the shadow of, of Roman capital punishment. <laughs> Don't worry about me. If that happens, I mean, that's what I really want in terms of being with the Lord. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is, and he says a very interesting thing in, in Greek. Usually we would translate the word that I'm translating very as much. And then the next word, malone, we translate it as more. And then the next word is a word for better. And so bad English, but powerful Greek, when you start stacking adjectives like this, much more better. It's very much better to be with the Lord. Now, now understand in his timing, it's much better. It's much better. But don't waste your life. Well, when that happens, then I'll be there. So, uh, or whatever you're doing with your life. Just live and, and, and live for self. For me to live is Christ. And if I live in the flesh, it's for fruitful work. And if you feel like your life doesn't have purpose, if you feel like, well, saying it's much better to be with the Lord, well, this is horrible. That's because you don't have the joy of the mission. You don't have the joy of God's plan for your life. You're not, you're, you're in a functional suicide. 
daily. Stop it. There's an awesome life to live. And notice it's in Paul's perspective of somebody on mission that he can say it's better to be with the Lord. But to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. Now, Paul isn't giving them a guilt trip and saying, you got a heavy load to lift. My whole purpose in life is you. The only reason I'm here is for you. He's telling them that the spiritual life and the ministry of the gospel is our reason to be here. And so to remain in the flesh is necessary. And he means for your account, it's necessary for me to stay here so I can minister to you. And then he doubles down. And since I am convinced of this, I know that I will abide. I'm not going to be killed by the Romans. I know that I'm going to live through this, this phase. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy of the faith. And in truth, Paul is not killed in this imprisonment. He's killed later. We think Philippians written in 60 AD, and we think Paul is killed around 63. In 2 Timothy, he says, I know I'm going to die soon, basically. I know I've run the race, I've fought the fight, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and, um, and you, you keep running the race, basically. He says, it's my time has come. Here he says, not my time yet. That's what he's doing. And I'm convinced because God has a plan for me and it directly affects you Philippians, I know that I'm gonna make it through this. I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that your boast may abound in Christ Jesus in me. So because of the spiritual life we have and because of the joy, I mean, we're made to boast, but it's in Christ. We're made to exalt it, but it's in Jesus Christ. Because of the work of Christ through the apostle Paul, they'll have their boast in Paul through his coming again to you. I know I'm gonna get to see you one more time, at least, he says. And so look what's happening. He's settling their hearts on their concern for him. They're heartbroken, it's their big brother. I mean, in a way, spiritual father, he gave, he planted this church. He gave them the gospel. They have Christ in a relationship because of Paul. And so they're concerned about him dying. He says, hey, even if I do, don't be sad for me. But if I'm here in the flesh, it's because I have work to do. And the work from verse 22 is work on your account in verse 24, 25, 26. Life and death in Christ. Hopefully we've painted a picture horrible sermon. I know. Start with a picture. Don't want to ride the train. You want to drive the car. Let's go back to the train and the car just to sew it up for ourselves. Your life has a purpose, but it isn't your lifestyle. It isn't what the world tells you. And you can't look around to your left and right and see what everyone else is doing. And from your civilization or your culture, gain an idea about what your life is. The gospel speaks to every culture. The gospel communicates to every civilization. Here's the great news. You live in a country that you speak the language, but you don't really belong to the world of it. You belong to the kingdom that's coming. In verse 27, we're not gonna read it today, but he says, be good citizens worthy of the gospel, meaning citizens of eternity and living your life worthy of the gospel. Some of you, this may be the first time you've heard such a radical message before. I'm sorry that you had to hear it from such a a weak vessel in terms of communication. I have nothing to say here except that we've worked on the scriptures here, truly. My illustrations, everything is intended to bring you closer and face-to-face with the word so that you have this perspective Paul's giving. That's truly my intention. But if you are seeing the incredible, the the fundamental break with the way the culture around you thinks about life and death. If you're seeing a totally unrecognizable way to think about yourself and about life and what we've said here, then I think you're getting it. You you can't adopt the way the world thinks about these things. There are, some loved ones in my life that cannot come to terms with me being here in Eastern Connecticut. They haven't spent a lot of time here. They don't know that it's a lot like Eastern Texas. Here in the Shire, really is. But there are people from back home, they're like, what could you, how could you do this? Don't you know how cold it gets? 
the secret that I don't talk about much is that I spent enough time in Texas in the range and, and, and in Iraq right before coming here that I'm, I'm good on the hot. I do start to get this nervous feeling in September when it starts to get cold. I start thinking, oh, here it comes. But you, you, know, you, just, you know what I'm going to say, right? There's a whole autumn. There's a whole fall season. Don't, don't worry. Just put a sweater. You don't have to get out your parka yet. These beloved people that don't have any idea why I'm here are like, well, the, the, so the people up there are liberal. And so they, you're going to you know, tax, they're going to tax the electricity where you almost can't afford it. And everything else, gas, diesel, everything's going to be more expensive in a really stupid way. They're not going to cut the trees away from the phone lines for whatever conservation reason. So that when the wind blows a little bit, they're going to, you're going to be out of power for six days. Why is that funny? Because it's true. You, can, you can't, the dollar doesn't go as far there. It's harder. It's just so expensive, all that. Look, I'm trying to do this. I, want, I said, God, let me work. Let me do the work. And he opened a door and we gladly jumped through it. And that's, that's, that's the way I have tried to live. I'm not perfect. I'm not, I'm not anywhere near perfect to this, but this is my goal. This is what I'm after. And where I fall short of it, guess what I have to do? Look in the mirror, say I need to make adjustments. I need to steer the car a little bit. Make, make the corrections that I need to make. That's what you call it. When you're steering, you're correcting. Don't overcorrect because that's death. Some observations here for you on to live as Christ. Here at the end, I'm supposed to um, tell the story and shut down. No, I'm going to give you, I think I've got six points of observation here to chew on a little bit, and maybe you'll feel something about it, but I definitely want you to think it. First, for Paul, the reason to live is twofold. There's two reasons to live if you read the passage. Fruitful work and the benefit of other believers, and those two are really the same, right? I don't mean fruitful work, and I mean your benefit, and the fruitful work is their benefit. So we're living for one another in that sense, as unto the Lord, in the power of the Spirit. We're living for the ministry to other humans. Second, Paul thinks that continuance in this life is the sacrifice. We think the sacrifice is when you die for the gospel, and we're right about that. He'll say that elsewhere. But in this passage, he's saying, eh, it'd be better to be with the Lord, but I'll, I'm, God's going to make me stay for you. So I have to keep on struggling, keep suffering, keep dealing with my eye problem, with my imprisonment, with my humiliation, with my embarrassment, whatever it is. I have to keep through this suffering phase for your sake. And so for him, the way he breaks this out, it's kind of a sacrifice. Did that come out when he's, it's better to be with the Lord, but I'll stay because I have work to do here for you. My work isn't done yet. So the sacrifice sense is, is it's flipped, right? Living for Christ. By the way, die to self daily, live for Jesus Christ daily. When it's time, when you're called on to bear witness for Christ with, with your death, all at once, die for Christ. That's the attitude he has. Third, it is better for Paul to be with Jesus. It is better for the Philippians for Paul to stay and minister to them. And that, my friends, will help you understand God's purpose for your life. It is better if we're just atomistic individuals in our individual spiritual walk, better be with the Lord. But he says it's better for you in terms of thinking this through that I'm here to work on your behalf. Your purpose in life is the mission of the gospel as it affects other people. And the gospel isn't just evangelism and it isn't just teaching believers, it's both. Paul does both. You and I are involved in both. God has gifted us spiritually in the power of the spirit to do both in the way he's gifted us, whatever your gifting is. Fourth, Paul's benefit to the Philippians is specific. If he stays, they'll be successful in the mission. That's the summary of what he's saying when he says you progress and joy in the faith. They'll be successful in mission if Paul stays on earth. That is not a general. So you're such a blessing to me. You're a blessing to me in the sense that you're equipping me to do God's work. That's the ministry. And fifth, I told you six, I meant five. Because the slide only holds five. I'm kidding, it holds as many as I give it, but.
The efforts in the faith of the gospel will progress. Their efforts are going to progress, and they'll rejoice as a consequence of that success. What do I get out of it? The baby believer, "Eh, give me something. Great. You know, feed me. Put something in there that I can eat. Great. Here it is. You want joy? Get on mission. You want to enjoy the things God has for you? Do what God asks you to do because that's where the joy lives. It doesn't live elsewhere. Oh, but I can have fun and have a sense of happiness doing something else for me. Yeah, but that's not the joy of the spirit and that's not the happiness God wants to give you. The, the context of his discussion and his encouragement about their progress in verse 26 is about the work and that's how their joy will advance. That's where it lives. The, the world's counterfeit to what I'm talking about, this joy of the work. The counterfeit is when I help people, I feel good. Um, uh, altruism. You know, I, it feels good to give something back. I feel better when I give or when I do. Well, okay, there's something in you as God's image bearer, unbeliever and believer, that we're made for that. But when you disconnect that urge to give from your creator, the ultimate giver and resupplier, the power behind his giving, you're not doing his work. And that's why just because someone does something nice or selfless, it doesn't mean it's the work of God. We're talking about the mission here. So yeah, the unbeliever knows about uh, giving back and feeling satisfaction and having done something for someone else. Great. I'm talking about something that can't be done apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his word. I'm talking about something that you have to have the Holy Spirit in you to produce. And I can't necessarily look at this guy's action and this guy's action. They look the same to me and make that distinction. But the Lord Jesus can and his word can discern the heart. And it's what's going on in the motivation and the power. How did you bring this ministry about? That is the question. But I I do want you to understand, Christians, if you lack the joy of the spiritual life that Paul is describing. If you have trouble with for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, if you have trouble with it's better to be absent of body and present with the Lord. If this is if these thoughts are big and, and hard for you to get hold of, you're lacking the joy of the work. And then you're what are you doing? You're live, what are you doing with your life? Right? And and again, it's a mirror. Shows you where you are. It's where we should be. And you look at yourself, see where you are. I don't really measure up. Got to make some adjustments. Get off the train, get in your car. What's your car? Of course, it's a Bugatti Veyron. It's a really fast, well-handling, awesome car. You, you have no idea how awesome is the spiritual life you've been given. That's the fastest road car, I think, that's legal in developed, or developed countries, the Bugatti Veyron. It's a... You have an incredible capability because God is working in you. Let's ask him for it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We've given a challenging message this morning of living the eternal life that we get only by grace through faith. In fact, I've challenged you to work the works of your spiritual life, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling as we'll read in Philippians 2. I've challenged you with the example of the Apostle Paul, but I want you to understand the only way to get there is by grace through faith. You have to have the Holy Spirit in you for the Spirit to bring his works forth in your life. You have to have a relationship with God for that relationship to bear fruit in your experience. And the way you get a relationship with God is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Right now, right where you sit, if you've never understood this, I want you to be very clear. There is nothing you can do to be saved. There is nothing. There is no giving. There is no attendance. There is no uh, being nice to people. There's no changing your ways. There's nothing you can do to receive eternal life and a declaration of God's perfect righteousness to your account. Because Jesus Christ has done everything. Your response to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, where he paid for your sins in his own body on the tree, where he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Your response to the work of Jesus is trusting him. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What you need to do with the cross of Jesus is 
trust him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You can express it, just to understand what I'm saying by believe, you can express it in a prayer. You're not saved by the prayer, you're saved by the faith, by grace through faith. But the, the, the way you could hear the, the faith expressed, if you wanted to, to, to say something, to, to understand what I'm saying when I believe, Father in heaven, I am trusting in your son that he paid for my sins on the cross, that he rose from the dead to give me eternal life. I'm trusting alone in him. I thank you for the salvation that comes only through him. Believers, when you first trust in Jesus, that moment of faith alone in Christ is eternal life for you. The message we've communicated is the life of Christian work as we trust in God and the Holy Spirit continues to pour ability into us so that it's even the work we do, the grace of God. Our Father, we praise you for eternal life. If there's anyone in the hearing of my voice who just trusted in Christ, Father, I pray for a fruitful spiritual life where a new birth will issue forth in progressive spiritual growth into a functioning spiritual gift into the glory, exalting Christ in our bodies. Father, if anyone here has been convict, convicted into a lifestyle change, into a different way of thinking about life from what Paul has said, strengthen us with resolve daily to say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Father, for all of us, let us be reinvigorated by the richness of your word so that we'll be on mission. Not to, not to just say, oh, we got to read the word and pray. Not just to say, oh, I'm going to share Christ or I'm going to pass out tracts, but to say, my life is yours, God, for your use. And you've told me the use is toward the ministry of the gospel. Make me useful to you. Let me be on mission. Let me be part of your work. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. amen.